Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk It Around podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday morning. If you're a Bills fan, well, it's almost Sunday again. So, you know, maybe you can get back on the horse and uh, start feeling good about this team again. We're certainly going to discuss that. Go through all the games. Great weekend of football in the NFL. It, it's funny. Week one down, 16 weeks yet to go. It's going to take me a minute to get used to that. It just seems strange, and, you know, this is the ultimate marathon. I know MLB used to be the marathon, but 16 or 17 games in the NFL, I think, equates to much more than 162 in Major League Baseball. So a lot of football to talk about, college football as well. Mets-Yankees sparked it up, and I thought it was as interesting of a Subway Series this weekend as you'll ever see. So we're certainly going to hit that. Also, so let me start with the Bills and the Steelers. This was a game that, with all the emotions of the timing of the game, the day after the 20th anniversary of September 11th, the fact that fans were back, sold out stadiums across the league, the Sunday 1 o'clock window was just different this year. And I, I get it. It's opening day. Opening day is always a feel-good day. There was a lot to me that was different. Thursday night, you had the opener with, with Brady and Dak going at it. We're certainly going to talk about that. But with the special rendition of the national anthem performed by the daughter of a victim of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, that I thought was great going around the league, seeing the different situations or scenarios, it just led to a flood of emotions. The Bills lose the toss, so therefore they get the ball first, and Isaiah McKenzie takes it 64 yards to the Pittsburgh 24. And the stadium is as loud as it's ever been. Go back to the playoff years, the glory years. It was that loud. It was great. And you're getting MVP candidate Josh Allen and the Bills offense coming out on the field first to, to, to play against a team that we know. Look, what did I say last week about the Steelers? I don't think Ben and that offensive line can hold up all season. The defense is going to be very good. So you know the challenge is there. Immediately, I disliked what the Bills did. First pass, completion of seven yards. Second pass, complete for two-yard loss. And then another throw. And within a minute, you go from the emotion of a 64-yard kickoff return to get you in position to score to a field goal attempt. That right there set the tone, in my opinion, for the rest of the day. Because I didn't like the play calls by Brian Dable. I didn't like how quickly that series evolved into a field goal when, when you have that good of a start. I, I just wanted more. And, and frankly, I, I would have liked to run. And I, I was a little worried about Dable with this offense. And I'm going to be worried about it all year in my, in my preseason. Requests, predictions, whatever you want to call it. I wanted 1,200 combined yards from Zach Moss and Devin Singletary. Well, game one, Zach Moss was a healthy scratch. Matt Breida is the backup running back right now. It shows something about what the Bills think of Zach Moss that they're not convinced this guy can help him on special teams. They're not convinced he can help him in short yardage. He's... In street clothes, watching the game like we are. So that puts a lot of pressure on Devin Singletary. With that as a mindset, with Singletary being your guy, you don't want to get him a touch right away and get him into the game? That seemed very strange to me. The fact that you've now anointed Devin Singletary your ball carrier. We thought it was going to be a running back by committee situation with Moss and Singleton. It's clearly, in the eyes of the Bills coaching staff, not going to be that way. So you you have a bell cow running back. We didn't think that was going to be the case, but you now do. And you don't get him a touch 
on the opening series. I found that very, very strange. The Bills kick a field goal, hold the Steelers, get it back. The next series, there were three holding calls in that series on the Bills. Dawkins, Morse, and Feliciano each got a holding call. And you started to see the T.J. Watt effect. You started to see Melvin Ingram and T.J. Watt both coming off the edge. And you could sense with Hayward in the middle, the Bills were overmatched up front. My biggest concern going into this year was the fact that the Bills' offensive line, I thought, isn't that good. And and it sure didn't look that good in the second series. They get the ball back, and they go three and out again. All the momentum that you set up with that first return by Isaiah McKenzie literally went out of the stadium. It was gone by the end of the first quarter, and then it became a dogfight. Think about this for the game. The Bills had four fumbles. Josh had two. You can't win football games fumbling the ball. They gave up three sacks, only had two. Gave up six quarterback hits. T.J. Watt had five hits on Josh Allen. The Bills had six hits on their whole team on Ben Roethlisberger. Josh Allen's a mobile quarterback. The Bills' offensive line is supposed to be a strong unit. They brought them all back. They're all been getting paid. Guess what? The Steelers' offensive line got settled about a week ago. It was put together with duct tape and patchwork. Yet they they protected Ben Roethlisberger, who's a statue back there. Ben isn't going anywhere. Josh Allen's the mobile quarterback. Very, very strange there. On third down, and this goes to Brian Dable not getting them in makeable third down situations and allowing Watt and Ingram to pin their ears back and come after Josh. Eight of 18 on third down conversions. Only one of four on fourth down conversions. Oh yes, I'm going to get to the fourth down conversion in a second. The Bills had eight penalties for 81 yards. By the way, we all love Sean McDermott. He's done a great job establishing a culture. You don't hear the word undisciplined football about the Buffalo Bills because of their penalties. Remember when Rex was here? The penalties were a problem because Rex was undisciplined. The team was undisciplined. So Rex had guys running laps at training camp if they committed a penalty. I'll tell you what, there were six holding calls. There could have been six more. There was one that was missed on Daryl Williams, he literally tackled Melvin Ingram. Tackled him. And there was no call. It was unbelievable how poorly the Bills' offensive line matched up against the Steelers' D-line. Now, don't forget, the Steelers' D-line, especially with Devin Bush back behind them, their front seven is as good as any in football. T.J. Watt just getting into camp, just signing that extension, is as good an edge rusher as there is in football. Melvin Ingram coming in replaces Bud Dupree and gives them an opposite equal force coming off the other edge. So it's a well set up, a well thought out, a well drafted and developed front seven. And with Minka Fitzpatrick at the back end, that Steeler defense is no joke. So while I'm very down on the Bills' offensive performance for a lot of reasons. Let's not take anything away from one of the best defenses in the NFL in the Steelers. Let's talk about the fourth and one play. Everyone freaked out about this, and rightly so, but for the wrong reason. Look, I get it that this play is a similar play to the play that was run years ago up in Seattle when I think it was Fred Jackson caught the lateral and scored a touchdown. Fine. Understood. It's a nice design. But here's my thing. If you're the Buffalo Bills, you want to be a Super Bowl contender. You want to view yourself as a team that's better than the other team in every way. There comes a point where you have to be a physical offensive football team. You don't always... Play a finesse style. And and the Bills are a finesse offensive team. 
But eventually, you got to be able to line up and get a yard. You got to be able to knock that defense on its ass and get a yard. And I'm not saying a quarterback sneak with Josh Allen. I'm saying your offensive line has to create movement and give you an opportunity. And if you have to out coach a half a yard, fourth and a half a yard play, like Brian Dayball did, that means you have no in the interior offensive line to hold up and give you an opportunity to get that half yard. It shows that John Feliciano, Mitch Morse, Cody Ford are not the answers. And and you want to put Ike Boker in there? Fine. Put him in there as, as well. They're not the answer up front, and that's a problem. If you have to out coach because you're not good enough physically, it's a problem. And, and I get it. I've just gave Pittsburgh all the praise in the world for how good their front seven is. And this week, you're going against a Miami team that's got a pretty stout front seven. It's just part of football. And getting a yard on the ground on fourth down is how you win football games. It's how you win games not only in September, but how you win games in January and hopefully February when the weather's turning. Look, Josh Allen is still an MVP candidate. After one week of we didn't like what we saw, Josh looked like not 2020 Josh. He looked like 2019 Josh. There were some moments. The the touchdown pass to Gabriel Davis was certainly a highlight film. That was a great, great throw. Defenders not looking at the ball. Throws a seed right by his head that only Gabriel Davis is going to have a chance to make a play on. Great, great throw. But he also missed some throws. And it was because of the pressure and the fact that he was never content in the pocket. He had plays where he had time, but you could see the mechanics weren't there at times. And and Josh made some bad deliveries. The 51 throws in a game that you're leading at halftime, 13 to nothing, it's a shutout. I don't understand that. The clock is your friend. You're playing at home. The 51 throws on a day that's very windy, the 51 throws on a day where Devin Singletary ran the ball 11 times for 72 yards, not real good at math, but that's over six yards a carry. Uh, six yards a carry will win in the NFL. I Again, 51 throws in a game that your quarterback is getting hit because your offensive line can't handle the pass rush. How about run the ball to back the pass rush off? How about run the ball because you're having success doing it? How about run the ball because it's harder to throw on windy days? All of the factors that would have Brian Dable get more 50-50 I just don't understand. And Josh carried the ball a bunch of times. It took more hits that way. Again, it's one game. I'm not overreacting. But this was a game that Brian Dable let get away from him. And he does this. Brian Dable's a great offensive coordinator. Don't get me wrong. He's probably going to get a chance to be a head coach after this year. However, Brian Dable at times gets very one-dimensional. And if you're one-dimensional, it's much easier for me to defend you. If you're only throwing the ball, I don't have to worry about the run. Therefore, I play nickel defense. I just continue to rush the passer. I don't have to worry about the running back sneaking through. And you never make an adjustment to that as an offensive coordinator. It's befuddling to me. It really is. There's a lot that I like about Brian Dable, but he gets tunnel vision at times, and there was a bad case of tunnel vision on Sunday afternoon. Now, one other thing about throwing the ball 51 times. Again, it's too many in a game you're leading. You throw the ball 51 times when you're down and you're trying to come back. But throwing the ball 51 times the way the Bills did extended the game, gave the Steelers an opportunity. And there's one other factor. Think about the targets to the wide receiving group. Gabriel Davis had five targets on the day. Stefan Diggs caught nine passes, 14 targets. Cole Beasley caught eight passes, had 13 targets. Manuel Sanders had four catches, 
but had eight targets. The Bills wide receiver group had 40 targets on the day. 40. What game plan is that? During the week, you're sitting there looking at it and saying, we're going to draw up a game plan. We're going to throw the ball 40 times just to our wide receivers. That's throwing the ball down the field. That's not a a quick release, hit guys in the flats, offense generally. Now, Josh missed a couple home runs. Emmanuel Sanders early on behind the defense by two steps. Got to make that throw. You can't overthrow it there. You're better off underthrowing it. At least then you got a chance for a penalty. Something good can happen out of an underthrow. I get it. You bring in a potential interception and an underthrow. But you can't overthrow that ball there. Not by three yards. That's a bad throw. That's a bad throw. And it's not an easy throw with the wind the way it was. But Josh Allen, if you're going to be an MVP, you got to make that throw. And he didn't. That was huge. The block punt can happen. Jimmy Johnson used to say there's three three phases to every football game. Offense, defense, special teams. If your offense beats their defense or their defense their offense loses to your defense, that's two wins. You give me two wins, I'm going to win the game. Two out of three wins the game. The Bills lost the special teams battle. They lost offensively to defense, but they did win defensively. Look, other than Levi Wallace, I thought the Bills played pretty well defensively. Not great. Not great. And I have problems with the way they came about it, but I'll get to that. Levi Wallace got picked on often late, and he didn't answer the challenge. And frankly, that young man is going to be up against it all year long. The Bills have a cornerback problem because they've got an excellent cornerback in Tredavious White. And think to yourself, how many times did you hear his name mentioned? Not very many. And frankly, Levi Wallace played pretty well. Chase Claypool made a great catch. Levi Wallace was in excellent position, did everything he could do. It was a better offensive play. You tip your hat, you move on. But they better get used to that. The real answer isn't for Levi Wallace to play better because I'm not sure he can. He is what he is. The real answer is to put pressure on the quarterback. This is where I thought the Bills' defense didn't do all that they could do. If you had told me before the game that the Bills' defense was going to come out of there with the numbers they gave up to Pittsburgh, absolutely. Yeah, they're going to win the game because the Bills stopped Najee Harris. By the way, that kid's good. He's going to be really good. As the Steelers continue to grow as a team and rebuild that offensive line, Najee Harris is going to be a very good back. Mark it down. But when you spend the way the Bills have on that defensive line, Gregory Rousseau, Ed Oliver, Jerry Hughes, all first-round draft picks. Jerry Hughes was obviously been there a long time, so you could take him out of this equation if you want. Mario Addison comes in as a big-time free agent expenditure. Starla Tudelay did not play. Big free agent acquisition. Two second-round picks in A.J. Appenenza. He had one hit. Other than that, didn't do anything in the game. Boogie Basham was a healthy scratch as a second-round pick. Harrison Phillips is a third-round pick. Vernon Butler is a high-priced free agent who's come in. The Bills have spent more on the defensive line than any other part of their football team. Yet the Steelers were the team that got home with three and four all afternoon. The Bills could not. The Bills' offensive line is all veterans. All back. Steelers' offensive line is all just being put together. It was a very disappointing performance by the Bills' defensive line and that they didn't force the Steelers, to turn the ball over. They didn't have those big impact plays that you need. Jermaine Edmonds had one really nice play early, had four tackles overall, and got his ass pancaked late in the third quarter. Matt Milano signed a big contract this summer. He had four tackles. You need more from these guys. Poyer was great at the back end. Hyde was great at the back end. Overall, the defense was solid. 
I'm sorry. If you're going to spend that much defensively, you got to get more. You, it's you got to be better. So I get it that it's only one game. I just didn't like some of the things that I saw. Oh, by the way, Gregory Rousseau, he started as a rookie in his first game. That was impressive, and I was a bit surprised that they did that. But I kind of like it because Mario Addison being a little bit older and being a little bit probably more seasoned pass rusher at this point, you can use him in pass rush situations and maybe he can get home, which he did. He got a sack and, and, and was one of the better pass rushers on the day. Rousseau had a couple nice plays, got used. A couple of his inexperience is going to show up here and there. I think Rousseau is going to be a good player. I really do. Bills have to do better. So it's on to Miami. The Dolphins, who are coming off a, a good road win, and, and say what you will, but they went to Foxborough and beat the Steelers. Or beat the Patriots, I'm sorry. Beat the Patriots 17-16. to Tua, in my opinion, got outplayed by Mac Jones. It was one of those, as you look at it, you're kind of curious to the quarterbacks of what they're going to do. Tua, he threw for 202 yards. He had a touchdown and a pick. 16-27. Solid. Not great. Solid. Mac Jones threw it 39 times. Remember the theory going in that the Patriots are going to run the ball and they're going to be conservative, let their defense win games? Well, 39 passes doesn't exactly speak to conservative game plan to me. 281 yards and a touchdown. What do the Bills expect when they go down to Miami? Well, they're going to expect the same thing they always get. Brian Flores is a good coach. That team is going to battle. Now they've got some weapons on the outside back. Jalen Waddell in his first game had a big catch for a touchdown. Gesicki's a problem for the Bills because I don't think they have somebody who matches up with him. We'll see if they can continue to stop the run. The Dolphins don't run it particularly well, but the offensive line is fairly solid. I think this is a dogfight. And frankly, the Bills being a three-and-a-half-point favorite at on the road surprises me a little bit. Now, Josh Allen has played some of his best games of his career against the Dolphins. For whatever reason, you start to look at his historical numbers against the Dolphins, they're very good. So maybe it's just one of those things that when you look at it, maybe the Bills go down there with a the, with the comfort zone and, and are able to get themselves going offensively. Because I frankly think this is a very big game. I predicted the Bills would start 3-3 three and three and people would freak out. They're 0-1 and people are already freaking out. If they start 0-2, it's going to be a tough ask for the Bills to just remain calm and go forward because of the hype around them. They are now the hunted, not the hunter. They've been the hunter for the last 23 years. Now they're the hunted, and it's a tough adjustment for a young team to make. They've got to expect everybody's best game. They're going to get a Sunday. This is a big one because if the Bills lose this game, they're not only in an 0-2 hole, they've got a loss on the road in division, and the Dolphins are 2-0 in the division. And remember, division wins becomes a tiebreaker at the end of the year, so There's a lot to play for this coming week. The Bills are going to have to turn this thing around quickly. I think it's imperative that Brian Dable has a much better day Sunday play calling than he did last Sunday. Three things need to happen for the Bills to win this game. The offensive line's got to be better, got to eliminate the penalties. Josh Allen's got to be more accurate. He's got to be able to be comfortable, get his feet set, and deliver the passes deliver passes on time and on target the way he has over the last year, not like he did on Sunday. And the third thing is you've got to eliminate the mistakes. The fumbles can't happen. The penalties can't happen. You've got to be a more disciplined football team. This is a big week of practice for the Buffalo Bills. So that's the Bills portion of it. Let's go around the league quickly, just give you some thoughts on the other 31 teams. The 
opening game, Tampa and Dallas, was about as good as you could have hoped for. If you're a Cowboy fan, and I am, truth in advertising, grew up and always will be a Cowboy fan. You have to be pleased with what you saw with Dak Prescott. He was as big a question coming into this season as there was in the league. He signed the big contract, coming back from the ankle injury, had the shoulder injury in camp. Is he healthy with his leg? Is his shoulder healthy so he can throw it? And Dak played a very good game. Threw for 403 yards, three touchdowns. I thought he was excellent. He apparently changed out of 12 running plays to passing plays. Zeke Elliott only carried it, I think, 11 times in the game. Kellen Moore told the media, which I don't know why you say this. I, I, I didn't like that he said this, that they had 12 more run plays called when they broke the huddle, but Dak checked out of it. So they had intended on giving Ezekiel Elliott much more work. Well, if you're paying Zeke that much money, you've got the offensive line in place, and while, frankly, it wasn't in place because Zach Martin missed the game, but now Lael Collins is facing a six-game suspension. Former Bill Ty Secchi likely to be the guy to start at right tackle for Dallas. I think you got to play Ezekiel Elliott and use him a little bit more. But the story of this game isn't about the Cowboys. It's about the best 44-year-old in sports history. All right, first off, Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback in NFL history, and anybody who doesn't agree with that is just obstinate because they hate Tom Brady. That said, at 44 years old, Brady played a great game. He threw for 379, four touchdowns. The only pick was a Hail Mary at the end of the first half. You can't ask him to do much more. And late in the game, after Dallas made a big play down the sideline to C.D. Lamb, I'm thinking, you have to run the ball here three times to eliminate the possibility of Brady getting it back with enough time to do something. They didn't. They threw it incomplete. The clock stops. I knew right then. Brady's got time. This game's over. And sure enough, it was. 44 years old, 87 Super Bowl victories. And other than the dye job of his hair, he looks the same as he always had. And frankly... He might be better because he's still the smartest quarterback that's ever played the game, not named Peyton Manning. Just outstanding. Sunday comes around. I talked about the games being fantastic. I wasn't more surprised by an outcome of a game than I was by how good Philadelphia looked against Atlanta. There was one game that surprised me more, I guess, the outcome, that was New Orleans over Green Bay. But I didn't think much of Philly going into this year. I thought in that division, they were they and the Giants were the bottom feeders. The Cowboys had a chance to be around 500, and I thought the Washington football team was the best team in that division. The way Jalen Hurts looked on Sunday, I think I may have been dead wrong on Philadelphia. Unfortunately, Matt Ryan... He looked like it's time, and and there's been a lot of discussion over the last year. Is it time for them to move on? Boy, I know it's one game, but it certainly did not look good for Matt Ryan and in the Falcons. Carolina, the Jets, interesting matchup week one. You've got Sam Darnold, who the Jets gave up on, going to Carolina. Christian McCaffrey's back. Zach Wilson is there for the Jets. If you're a Carolina fan, the best thing about that was that Christian McCaffrey looked like Christian McCaffrey. Sam Darnold, he looked okay. I just don't think Sam's ever going to be a great quarterback. He's going to be a good quarterback wherever he ends up. I don't think he's in Carolina long term. I think he's there until they find somebody better. But he looked okay. If you're a Jets fan, Zach Wilson showed progress as the game went along. The problem is the offensive line's going to be an issue all year. And now with Makai Becton out for six to eight weeks, that's a tough loss. And Zach Wilson is somebody who's going to with ha- going to have to withstand a ton of punishment in his rookie year. He's going to learn, he's going to get better, but we'll see what he can do there. Real entertaining game, and I didn't think much of this one going in. Bengals beat the Vikings in overtime. And, you know, if you're the Vikings. 
you're stuck in that middle ground. Kirk Cousins is a middle ground quarterback. The defense isn't what it used to be. The offense should be run through Dalvin Cook. I'm, I'm not sure it is all the time. I think that becomes an issue. They've got very good receivers and, and I think they like to take advantage of that with, with Kirk Cousins. I, I'm not sure that's the right thing. I just don't know that the Vikings are going to be a team that makes the playoffs this year. They can, but the Bengals are a team that I think is growing. Joe Burrow, should he survive, is going to be a very good quarterback. I say that because he got sacked again five times on Sunday. He was very good. Jamar Chase, who in the preseason couldn't catch the ball, five catches, 101 yards, and a touchdown. Burrow made big throws late. And the Bengals win the game on the last play of overtime. Good win for the Bengals. Their offensive line still sucks. They've got to get better up front. And if they do that, then I think they can really build around Joe Burrow. The 49ers look really good offensively. Jimmy G looked good. They had some key injuries again. There's a player on San Francisco that I don't think most of the fans in football realize how good he is. But Debo Samuel Samuel is one of the best receivers in football. He's kind of out of sight, out of mind, because he plays out in San Fran. He's not all that spectacular, but man, is he good. Nine catches, 189 yards on Sunday. Give the Lions credit. They were getting blown out, and they had an opportunity late to get back in this game. And the fact that they did that showed me something about the way they're going about things this year under their new coach, Matt Campbell. I I do like what the Lions have going a little bit. I think there's maybe reason to be optimistic in Detroit for the first time since, yeah, probably the first time. Anyway, Houston, another bad game. Houston beat the Jags. Houston's got a problem because they paid their quarterback $38 million to not play. Uh, Deshaun Watson's the problem, not the Texans. The Texans don't know what to do with him. Deshaun wanted to be traded, and then 20-some-odd women accused him of sexual assault, and now it's a mess. But Tyrod Taylor played a nice game. For the Jags, the interesting thing, of course, it's the Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence show. Trevor Lawrence looked like what I thought he would. He threw for over 300 yards. He threw for three touchdowns, and he threw three interceptions. It's going to take Trevor Lawrence a long time. It's going to take the offensive line of Jacksonville a long time to get better. And when I say a long time, three, four years. Be patient. It's there. It's going to be really good if Jacksonville is patient there. Seattle beat Indy and Indy had a bad start to their preseason injuries all the way through. Didn't get the running game going with Jonathan Taylor. Maybe asked Carson Wentz to do a little too much. But let's face it, this game was about one guy. Russell Wilson showed again, let Russ cook, four touchdowns. Real, real strong game for Seattle. How about Arizona, what they did to Tennessee? Talk about a statement. Kyler Murray accounted for five touchdowns, threw for four, ran for one. Tennessee is a team I thought was going to be much like the Bills in contention in the AFC late. They laid an egg at home. It wasn't good at all. Tyler Luan got his lunch handed to him by Chandler Jones, who had five sacks in that game. I don't know if Arizona's ready to take that next step. And frankly, in the NFC West, That division's stupid good. I talked about San Fran and how good they are. (laughs) Didn't get to the Rams yet, but they look great. Arizona, Seattle, that's a tough, tough division. And the rest of the NFC, you better win your division because I think all three wild cards are coming out of the West. I don't know if it's even possible, but it certainly looks like it could be. Oh, one other thing, and this is something I'm going to watch all year long. Derrick Henry, he's always better late in the year, and I get that because he's so big, so strong. As teams get worn down, he plays better. You look at his game logs over the last couple years, definitely a second-half player. 17 carries, 58 yards. Eventually, all of those carries, even on a a body as big as Derrick Henry, is going to take its toll 
is this the year? A lot of people who drafted him very early in fantasy football are going to be worried about that. Real good game between the Chargers and the Washington football team. Chargers, I think, have a chance to be a playoff team. That offensive line looked really good against what I think is the best defensive line in football for the Washington football team. You only had two sacks of Justin Herbert. He threw for 337. It's not going to be a game. When you play Washington this year, you're not going in there and winning 45-38. to It's not that way. Can't be that way. The other side of the coin is Washington, as good as their defense is, They've got really nice skill position players on offense. However, Ryan Fitzpatrick's your starting quarterback, or was. Fitz has a hip injury. It happens to old guys. I'm hoping I don't fall down and break a hip. Remember, you can't kill you can't kill a cockroach. Fitz is a cockroach. He'll be back. That said, it's Taylor Heineke, Heineke time, and I don't think that's a good thing for Washington. Here's the thing. Let's let's take a break about going around the league. Let me throw some logic at you. Tweeted this out yesterday, and I firmly believe it. Washington has a defense that's good enough to win a championship. Washington has very good wide receivers led by Terry McLaren. They've got a good offensive line, and they've got a running back by committee led by Antonio Gibson. They've also got McKissick, and the kid from Buffalo, Jared Patterson, as their backups. They've got depth. They're a quarterback away from, they're going to win the NFC East, in my opinion, because they're the best team, although Philly may have something to say about it. But why not do something aggressive to give yourself a chance to go higher than the NFC East? And I'm not talking about going out and picking up Cam Newton. Cam Newton makes sense. Sure. He used to play for Ron Rivera. They know each other well. He can add uh, his physical presence to running the football. But let's be honest. We've seen Cam Newton. He's not a good thrower of the football anymore. You need somebody who could get the ball down the field to score and take some pressure off of what is, like I said, a very good defense. If there was a quarterback available, wouldn't you make a run at him? Well, there is. Deshaun Watson. I mentioned it earlier. Houston's paying Deshaun Watson not to play. They're stuck on this whole, we need three number ones and we need three impact players. Look, you can want all you all you can ask for, right? They can say that. We want this. Well, you're not going to get it. You might get two number ones. You really might. A team may come up and pay you two number ones, and you might get a player out of it as well. And if you get that right now, if you're the Houston Texans, if somebody says, I'll give you two number ones and a linebacker, get Deshaun on the plane and get him out of Houston. You just took $40 million a year off your salary cap. You saved yourself a PR nightmare that began long before the women started accusing him of sexual assault because he wanted to trade anyway. And you got something back. You get a ton back. Two number ones is a ton. If you think about it, you look at Gardner Minshew, he went for five. Two number ones for a starting quarterback is good as Deshaun Watson is, but as flawed as he is, would be a huge haul. Why not two number ones and a player for Deshaun Watson to the Washington football team? And if you're saying, man, you can't bring that guy in. He can't be the face of your franchise. Look, the face of the Washington football team's Dan Snyder. How much do you really care about the image of your franchise when it's Dan Snyder who's the image of your franchise right now? He's the worst owner in sports. And if all of the stuff that has been investigated ever comes out, they're going to force that guy to sell anyway. A couple of years ago, they brought in the kid from San Francisco who just got cut because he ended up beating up another woman. So you think they're really concerned about image? No. And you have a chance to win. And Deshaun Watson isn't suspended by the league. He could step in and play right now. As a matter of fact, he should be starting in Houston. They're paying him not to play. The league isn't saying he can't play. He's not on the commissioner's exempt list. He's in limbo. 
It makes too much sense for it not to happen. Oh, it's not going to happen. But it should. It absolutely should happen. Chiefs-Browns game was a fun watch. This was an excellent game. If you're a Browns fan, relax. I get it. It's a game they had. It's a game they could have won. Baker makes a bad throw. He's getting tackled as he makes the throw. Look, Jedrick Wills got hurt in that game. That's a huge loss. How long he's out for is going to impact the Browns offensively. But I'm not worried because their defense is really good. Miles Garrett's an absolute freak. They've got the best one-two running tandem in the league. They didn't play OBJ yet. Jarvis Landry had a nice game. And Baker looked awesome. He was so accurate, so on point. couple throws to David Njoku that were just perfect. Baker played an excellent game, made one bad throw. And when you're playing against Patrick Mahomes, it only takes one. Watching Patrick Mahomes play is such a joy. He didn't even have a great game. He made a couple great throws. 337, had three touchdowns. The one long throw to Tyree Kill as he's getting pushed. It's just crazy. And Tyree Kill, um, look, I don't know a whole lot about defensive football other than there's certain things you can't do. You can't single cover that guy. How, who comes up with a game plan where you look at it and go, yeah, I think if we put one guy on Tyreek, we're good. No. Have a safety over the top every time. Every single time. Tyreek Hill, 11 catches, 197 yards, and the touchdown. It's just too easy. Absolutely too easy. KC, as tough as their division is going to be, still the team to beat in the NFL, in my opinion. Talked about the Miami-New England game. Talked a little bit about the Saints manhandling the Packers. It's so funny looking at the numbers for this game. Jameis Winston threw the ball for 148 yards. Alvin Kamara threw or ran for 83 yards. Now, if I had said that on Friday, over-under of yardages, you probably would have taken the over on both. And if you hit that number, you would have said, Green Bay's going to kill him. Yeah, well, Aaron Rodgers had about as bad of a game as Aaron Rodgers has ever had. 133 yards through a couple interceptions, got shut out. Good for Jameis that he threw five touchdowns. But those five touchdowns are almost, I don't want to say flukish, but when you only throw for 148 yards, I don't... I'd love to know this. Uh, Mr. Elias, could could you answer this question? What's the lowest yardage total for anyone who's thrown for five touchdown passes in a game? Can't be much more than 148 or much less than 148. I think the Packers will be fine, but I think the Saints showed that they're a pretty good defensive team as well. Now, they've got some injuries that they're going to have to deal with. But if Jameis does what he did Sunday, and that's not turn the ball over, Kamara's great back, continue to run him. they got an excellent offensive line. I have a lot of confidence in Sean Payton. I think the Saints are going to be a lot better than maybe we expected and, and maybe give Tampa a run for their money in that division. A game that I watched about, no, I didn't watch a play of, Denver and the Giants. Two teams that are just boring. The Giants, Saquon Barkley makes his return, has 26 yards on 10 carries. If you're only giving it to him 10 times, hold him out, keep him healthy. Danny Dimes was okay. But to me, I think what you forget sometimes is how good Denver's defense can be when Bradley Chubb's on one side and Vaughn Miller's on the other. When you have those guys both on the field, Justin Simmons at the back end, that's got a chance to be a really good defense. Vic Fangio, defensive guy. If they can run it the way they did, Melvin Gordon was over 100. If they could do that, they're another team from the AFC West. All the good football's out West, people. It's all out West this year because all the teams in the West divisions have 
seemingly improved. The Rams, another NFC West team. Matthew Stafford's debut for the Rams looked really good. Three touchdowns, over 300. But Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey, they're two of the top five defensive players in the league. For them to be both on the same team, really, really impressive. And, you know, if you're the Bears, you've got really good defense. That defense, I think, is strong. Unfortunately, there's no complimentary offense. David Montgomery's nice as a back. But if you've got Andy Dalton, who has always, always held the ball too long, just no threat. He, he slid down on a third and eight where if he if he dives, he gets a first down, and it's inside the five. Andy, I get it. It's late in your career. You don't want to take a lot of hits. But if Justin Fields is there, that's a touchdown. It's a walk-in. Justin Fields has got to be the starter for the Bears, and I know it's beating a dead horse at this point, but Matt Nagy is just being obstinate to not make that move. And then the last game last night, great game, fun game to watch. Who had Zay Jones as the hero of the game? No, he wasn't, but he did catch the game-winning touchdown pass. It's funny that Zay Jones and Nathan Peterman still play for the Raiders. That's like old Bills trivia for 200. Uh, Another Bills player, Jefferson, makes a good hit on Lamar Jackson, forces one of the two fumbles that Lamar had late. The Ravens have had so many injuries to the running back room. Latavius Murray, who was signed on Friday, had about a dozen carries in this game. They've got to get help to Lamar. Otherwise, the hits he took. Lamar's spectacular. Let's not make this more than it was. they got to get him help. Because if you don't get him help, he's going to take too many hits, and he's not going to be around by the end of the year. Lamar doesn't take a ton of big hits because of his elusiveness, but all it's going to take is one. And I'm after watching that last night, they're asking that guy to do an awful lot, and it is a tough, tough situation. College football, just quickly on this one. USC fired Clay Helton, and Clay Helton was never going to be Pete Carroll. He was never going to be the guy to bring USC back to prominence. You look at the coaches since Pete Carroll, and you know this is a problem with these big programs that get a coach who is just great. They have huge success. When he leaves, if you don't have the right person in, in, in line to take over, if Ryan Day is not there to take over from Urban Meyer, then you're not going to have continued success. Lane Kiffin replaced Pete Carroll. He was replaced by Ed Ogeron, who was replaced by Steve Sarkeesian, who was replaced by Clay Helton. Look, Clay Helton's a good man. He really is, by all accounts, a really good guy. It did a lot for that university. But I'll tell you what, if you're USC and UCLA and Chip Kelly all of a sudden apparently have things going, mediocrity isn't the answer. That said, you fire a guy two games into the season, like, Seriously, what what is going to change in season that's going to get this better? I really don't know. Why not play it out and then by the end of the year you make a call and get rid of them? Believe me, the coaches you want, they know they can get that job if you want them. You know, the Urban Myers of the world. Uh, he's currently got another job. I don't think they'll be able to get the guys that they want, but... This is a situation that I thought it was an overreaction by USC to fire him, but that's a big-time program now with a coaching vacancy. The Subway Series was this weekend, and while, to me, mostly interleague play has gotten boring, there's always a little juice when some teams play, like the Mets and the Yankees, and Dodgers and the Angels have a little juice, but... By and large, baseball doesn't have a whole lot of interleague rivalries. Mets and Yankees might be about the only one. And on Saturday night, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in New York, it, it was a great presentation where Bobby Valentine throws out the first pitch to Joe Torre. The teams are unified and on the field. And you know, it was really cool and, and, and really 
a good give back, if you will, to the city that suffered so greatly 20 years ago. I mean, our country suffered, but let's face it, nobody, no city suffered more than New York City did with the losses of 9-11. So while Saturday was a feel-good story, and if you're a Yankee fan, it was a feel-good story for them to come back late on Trevor May and end up getting a good win, a win that they needed badly after losing Friday night and the losing streak continuing to grow, but brings us to Sunday. And Sunday night baseball, Mets and Yankees going against Sunday night football, I'm sure the ratings weren't very good. I'm sure it wasn't something that a lot of people saw, but it was one of the more impactful baseball games for two teams and especially for two players that you might see. Apparently on Saturday night, Mets pitcher Taiwan Walker was tipping his pitches. Look, in baseball, if a pitcher's tipping his pitches and you can find out about it and you can signal what's coming to your player, you do it. However, there's getting somebody's pitches because they're tipping them, and then they're stealing signs. Go back to the Astros. What happened with them? The banging on the garbage can. On Saturday night, Jonathan VR, the Mets' third baseman, heard whistles coming from the Yankees' dugout. He went to the mound to talk to Taiwan Walker, let him know he was tipping his pitches. The Mets' pitching coach, Jeremy Hafner, came out after a discussion, and Walker had given it up early. And then he settled in. So apparently, or if you believe the Mets side of things, there was something coming from the Yankees' dugout alerting the hitters as to what pitch was coming. And then Walker corrected it. Now, here's where I don't understand the unwritten rules of baseball, and frankly, I I hate the unwritten rules of baseball. If I'm on second base and I'm looking in and I can give you a signal of what sign's coming, it's not liked, but it's accepted. But if I'm in the dugout, and I the only thing I can think of is why it's different. If I'm in the dugout, I have access to electronic equipment that allows me to see things that I may not see with the naked eye on the field. If that's the difference, okay, I guess I understand it. If it's not, I don't understand what the difference is. But Sunday night... It was very obvious that there was a little bit of edge to the Mets. Francisco Lindor, first time up, hits a, it's a long home run, left-handed. His next time up hits an absolute bomb, right-handed to left center. And as he rounded second base, he looked out to left field where Giancarlo Stanton was playing, and put his fingers in his mouth to signify like something like he was whistling, and then said something out to Stanton. It was strange, live. I caught it live, and I saw it live, and I was like, what's he doing? When he rounded third base, he gave the shut-up sign to the Yankee dugout. And again, I'm like, wait, what's going on? What, what did I miss? What happened? And at this point, we had just heard from Buster only because he spoke to a reporter, Marley Rivera, who had spoken to Jonathan VR about the whistling from the night before. So that started the story. But it was very strange that Lindor did what he did rounding second. Mets lead in the eighth inning, or I'm sorry, in the seventh inning. And in the top of the eighth, Giancarlo Stanton comes up with a runner on second. Now, you're listening to A-Rod, and he's saying, I think rightly so, you got to pitch around Stanton. The Mets chose not to, and Stanton had an absolute bomb for a, a go-ahead home run. As he rounded second, Lindor's playing shortstop, Stanton essentially stopped his home run jog to jaw with Lindor. And those two started going at it. Stanton finishes the home run trot and crosses the plate. 
benches clear. Of course, the bullpen guys come running in. I love that. Look at how close the Yankee and, and Matt relief pitchers are. Hey, guys, let's run 400 feet that way, and then we'll fight. If I'm going to fight somebody, I'm going to fight him while he's standing next to me. But they all come together, and there was a lot of John. Baez and Lindor, John quite a bit. Stanton and Judge, by the way, the Yankees, with Stanton, Judge, Voigt, Gallo. Oh, my God. That, that's, that's a team you don't want to fight. But there was some good join going back and forth. Brett Gardner doing the thumbs down sign to Baez and Lindor that created some controversy a couple weeks ago. So here we have the Subway series the day after all this unify we are brothers type thing and they're heated and they're getting into it. And, Frankly, it's great for baseball, in my opinion, because they they need a little something, a little juice. And then, bottom of the eighth inning, Lador comes up and hits a go-ahead home run to take the lead for the Mets. The Mets close it out. Diaz gets a save. Ironically enough, Stanton pops out to Lindor to end the game. The Mets win the season series. The Yankees suffer a loss. Both played last night. The Mets laid an egg. The Yankees come back on a big judge home run. But the interesting thing to me, going forward, Mets fans hadn't fully embraced Francisco Lindor. They loved it when he got here, and then he struggled for two months. He's been, since June, he's been a pretty good player. And the last month, he's been actually a very good player. But that moment and that reaction endeared him to Mets fans. He took a curtain call after that. Yankee fans have been down on Giancarlo Stanton since he got to New York. They didn't want him. They didn't like him. They haven't embraced him. But him running his mouth after the home run, all of a sudden Yankee fans are like, yeah, that's our guy. Two key players going forward who are going to be there for a long time long time, I think had their respective moments for their franchises. That was Giancarlo Stanton, if you will, earning his pinstripes. And he will now, I think, be thought of differently by Yankee fans. That was Francisco Lindor earning his Mets stripes, if you will. And now, going forward, he can relax and play. And I think... Both guys will benefit greatly from a situation. I don't even know if it mattered because I don't know if either of them are going to make the playoffs. The Mets most likely not. The Mets have to get things going. In the next five days, I should say the next five games, will determine that. we got two more against the Cardinals. They must win both of them. And need to win two out of three this weekend against Philly. If they're able to do that, they have a chance in the wild card because St. Louis, Philly, and San Diego are ahead of them. They're only three and a half games back. For the Yankees, their playoff fortunes, right now, they're tied with Boston for the second wild card position. Toronto has leapfrogged both Boston and New York. The Yankees have three games in their next nine at Baltimore, three against Cleveland, and three against Texas. They need to win seven of those nine games. That's a seven and two nine game stretch. Toronto has over its next 12, seven against Minnesota and five against Tampa. So as red hot as Toronto is, oh, by the way, Vlad Jr. hit 45 home runs or hit his 45th home run last night. Ridiculous how great that young man is. They have a manageable stretch. You look at what the Red Sox have, they've got three against Baltimore, three against the Mets over their next six. So they need to, again, take advantage of that. I'm sorry, and and they finish up two games in Seattle. But the Red Sox have six games left against Baltimore and three games at the end of the year against the Nationals. Again, that's another 7-2 and stretch there. So it's going to to be determined pretty quickly in the AL East, I think Toronto is the team to catch us because they're playing such great offensive baseball. 
the Red Sox and Yankees both seem a little tired. But, hey, there's two weeks left in the season. It's time really to turn this thing on and, and get going with it. I'm sorry, three weeks left in the season. But, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch down the stretch. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.